Yeah. Yeah, it's like girl power up here today, isn't it? Awesome. Awesome. Hey, uh, how did it go last night? Everybody survived? Everybody good? Uh, I was here with 600 of my closest friends at the 645 service last night, all who hated trick-or-treaters. So thanks for abandoning me to that. All right. Hey, uh, I don't know how you do when people knock on your doors when, when they're uninvited. I know Halloween's its own thing, so if you don't see that coming, that's on you. But when someone knocks on your door uninvited, especially if they're trying to sell you something, I don't know how that interaction goes for you. It doesn't usually go great for me. I don't really like those types of interactions. So much so, I went out uh, last year because we were having so many solicitors come to the door and got one of those little stickers that says, no soliciting, and put it on the door, which I've noticed a noticeable uptick in the amount of solicitors who've come to my door since putting that on my door. So maybe that was the wrong strategy, but I, I put that out there. And here, here's the, the reason why. It's, it's an uncomfortable situation when you're dealing with somebody who you can tell they don't really believe in what they're trying to sell you anyway. They, they don't buy into it. They don't believe in it. They're not into it. They're just, and sometimes they're even kind of ashamed about the whole interaction to begin with. Now that's with one big exception, and that would be the Girl Scouts. The Girl Scouts are not ashamed, and there's one reason, Thin Mints. They got thin mints and they know it. They, they are, they're absolutely positively well aware of their product. And those things, they're so good. I don't like mint anything in my life, but for some reason I like thin mints, especially if you put them in the freezer. Those things are like crack. You just can't stop eating those things. And so, so even so much so that when I, when I went out and I, I was looking for one of those, uh, those no soliciting stickers, one of the ones I came across said no soliciting unless you sell thin mints. I thought that's probably the, the right one to get because they're not ashamed. Now, Paul, I know this is a turn, Paul in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we're going to spend some time unpacking that today, but I want to look at a little bit of the context first, because Paul, he's an interesting character to make that statement, because Paul at one point in his life was this up-and-coming Jewish rabbi who had studied under the most famous rabbi of his day, and he was on his way to notoriety and fame. And so when he, when he saw the growth of Christianity happening, he actually thought that he was serving God by traveling around and arresting men, women, and children, dragging them out of their homes, and sometimes even overseeing their executions. Paul was a murderer, and he thought he was doing that in the service of God. And then God turned his life upside down. Jesus radically changed his life, turned him into a Christian, and turned him into the greatest Christian missionary of all time, which is ironic. He ended up writing a good chunk of the New Testament, and he ended up sacrificing his very life in Rome for his faith. And in the midst of all those journeys and all those places that Paul went, all the times that he was preaching and teaching and all that, there was this, this group of people that looked at him and they were ashamed of Paul. Like, man, Paul, you used to be one of us. You used to be one of our guys. You used to be this up-and-coming teacher and preacher and, and rabbi. You were, you were the one that we were going we to listen to, and now we're just ashamed of you. And so often so, what would happen is Paul would travel to a, a, a town or a city, and he would, the first stop he would make would be to go to the Jewish synagogue. And he would tell everybody there, listen, I've studied this my whole life, like you guys have studied this your whole life. And the whole Old Testament was pointing to Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. He's the promised Messiah. Put your faith in him. And on a good day, Paul was laughed out of the synagogue. On a bad day, he was beaten and flogged and stoned and left for dead. Paul was ridiculed at every turn by those who once saw him as the next big thing. He was called a fool, and people tried to shame him every chance they got. And yet, here's Paul saying, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. And when you look at that word ashamed, Paul is saying, no, I'm not sorry. I won't withdraw or hold back. I won't hide. Paul was an instigator. He really, really was. 
And how could he hide after what Jesus had done for him? I mean, Paul referred to himself as the worst of sinners. After the way Jesus had transformed his life, how and why could Paul ever back down and be ashamed of of the gospel? That word gospel in the Old English was the word God spell, which meant good spell or good story. Paul had a good story. And if you're in here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you need to understand this as well. You have a great story too. You have a great story as well, which leads us to our final values. We wrap up this Meet Your Maker series. We've been looking at the things that matter most to us as a church and individuals. And that value is all about your story. It's called relational evangelism. And I know it sounds really, really churchy, but it's actually not. It's really simple. That word evangelism simply means to announce or share good news. And the word relational just means that's the way we do this. We, it's the way, the method in which we announce and share the good news that we have. We do it in a relational way. So around here, what, what you need to understand is this. We care about people, whether they ever believe in Jesus or not. People are not projects. People are people. They're not something to cross off a list. So we build relationships with people who don't know Jesus because they're people that God loves. Now, relational evangelism if you were to define it I think it would look something like this because of what Jesus has done for us we believe the most loving thing we can do for others is to go to them and invite them to come and see who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them so I went to a Bible college which is kind of a weird experience in general and you take some interesting classes in Bible college one of the classes I remember taking that I felt really weird about was one called personal evangelism it's really weird. It was like we spent all this time talking about like the, the methodology and the techniques and the mechanics of how to have a conversation with a human being. It seemed really, really strange and manufactured to me. It was like taking a, an art and turning it into a science. And the reality is this. There's not a person in here who needs a class on evangelism because every person in here does, a, does evangelism probably really effectively. Now, it may or may not have anything to do with Jesus. That's the catch. Think about it. When you have found something, experienced something, and that thing has changed your life for the good, what's the first thing you usually do? You tell somebody about it. And the people that you usually tell about it first are the people that you love and know the best first. And then that kind of spreads to those who are in your realm of influence. And then sometimes you'll even seek to gain influence in someone's life that you didn't have a previous relationship with for the sole purpose of introducing them to the thing that has changed your life. That happens all the time. It could be a method for losing weight, it could be a fitness thing, it could be a supplement thing, a nutrition thing, it could be essential oils, it could be chiropractic care, it could be a book, it could be a movie, a TV show, a football team, a website, an app, a podcast, a restaurant. We are evangelistic about just about everything in our life that we perceive to be good and life-changing, right? The reality is this, we tell people the things that are going on in our life that make a real difference in our life. It just, it just comes out of us, we can't help it. The question becomes, why do we do that? Why do we so quickly share with other people the things that change our life? And the reason is very, very simple. Because you love people. We love people. That's why we share the things that matter most to us with the people that matter most to us. Now, with that being said, there's this tension that's growing in our culture right now. Because what's happening is we have a, like what we talk about around here all the time, followers of Jesus have a biblical worldview, right? We, we see uh, the world through the filters that the Bible gives us. In other words, we see the world the way that Jesus sees the world. We live in a culture that is, is distancing, distancing itself from that at a rapid pace. So one of the things that followers of Jesus are being told repeatedly, explicitly, and implicitly in our culture today in America is this. Your faith is private it so keep it to yourself and a lot of us we've we've taken that cultural command and cue and we've said okay we'll live by that we'll just be quiet we'll keep it ourselves we'll keep it private despite the fact that our leader our maker Jesus himself told us to do the exact opposite of that 
Jesus told us to take his message of his life, death, resurrection, and kingdom to the very ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus never intended for us to keep this story quiet. I'll give you one example in our culture right now. This was something that happened recently in my family. My daughter Landry, she's in sixth grade this year, and we decided to homeschool her this year after being in public school her her whole life. And please understand, that's not a statement on public schools or anything like that. There's a whole bunch of reasons behind that that I don't have time to get into today. But but so this year, she's homeschooled, and so she had an assignment where she was supposed to write about uh, three things that mattered most to her in her life. And when we looked at the outline of her assignment, we noticed in those top three, Jesus wasn't there. And so my wife went to her and was like, hey, Landry, did Jesus make your top three or just, you know, what's the deal? And she's like, oh, yeah, of course he is, but I, I'm not allowed to write about Jesus in school. Like, Baby, you're, you're homeschooled. You can write about Jesus all day long, every day if you want to. And she was like, where did you hear that? She's like, that's just what I've always been told. I'm like, really? That's what you've always been told? So we went to my son who's fourth grader still in school and went, hey, have you, you've been told this? You, you, you've been told? He's like, oh, yeah, we've been told for ever since kindergarten. We're not allowed to talk about Jesus at school. Now, notice. Notice the message. It's this. You aren't allowed to talk about the most important thing in your life. Not here. Not in this public setting. You need to keep it private. When you say that out loud, it sounds right. It sounds basically un-American, doesn't it? Welcome to the new world that we live in. And in this new world, a lot of us as Christians are being quiet. Now listen to me on this one, all right? The reason I think a lot of us are being quiet is out of very pure motives. I I think that's why a lot of us do that because we don't, here's the motives. We don't want to turn people off to Jesus. We don't want to be perceived as judgmental. We don't want to be one of those people who preaches down at people and shoves our religion down other people's throats. Does anybody want to really be perceived that way? I don't, right? The problem with that though is when we retreat and we be quiet, what does that leave the rest of the world left to experience? Only Christians who do all those things, right? So Christians get this really, really bad rap because a lot of good Christians are being really, really quiet. So in our efforts to not turn people off to Jesus by being quiet, that's exactly what happens. People get turned off to Jesus because they're only left to hear from very mean Christians. So could I propose another option? And that option, I think, is in line with what Jesus has commanded us to do. And that would be to lovingly and unashamedly point people to Jesus. And this interaction Jesus had in Mark chapter 12, I think, kind of draws this out. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, and I think this is funny, you're right, teacher. That's a good thing to say to Jesus. You're right. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, religious practices. And when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely. He said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. Jesus tells this scribe, you're not far You're right there. You're not far from the kingdom of God. You see, we talked a lot about this concept of the kingdom of God around here for the better part of this past year. And the kingdom of God has two simple truths. The kingdom of God is marked by, saturated in, and overflowing with love for God and love for people. It's really simple. So when we start talking about loving people by telling them about Jesus, that's when the kind of what ifs start to kind of creep in, right? We, we have these objections. Well, what if they don't listen? What if they misunderstand me? What if I get made fun of? What if I get labeled? What if I get ostracized? 
I don't want to overstate the level of opposition that we face in our culture because it's not near on the level that Paul faced in his day. It's not near on the level of Christians in the Middle East today are facing right now. So when Paul wrote that letter to the church at Rome, you need to understand that he's writing to a place where he was eventually going to be executed in for following Jesus. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that carries a lot of weight. So yeah, maybe all those fears might come true. People might not listen. You might get misunderstood. You might get ostracized and labeled. All that could potentially happen. But look at the other side of the coin as well. What if, what if one person were to come to the saving power of knowledge of gospel through Jesus Christ as their Savior? What if one person would come to that knowledge through your story? Because you shared it with them. Would that be worth it? It was for Paul, that's why he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That word power is awesome. Underline it, circle it, highlight it, write it down. Because it comes from the word in, in Greek, dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite from. So the gospel is packed with power. The good news, this story of God's kingdom made available to us through Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection is dynamite. It's powerful. It's explosive. It can change entire cultures and landscapes. It's the gospel that's been doing exactly that for 2,000 years now and counting in nations and countries, tribes, cities, towns, and history. It's more explosive than we can fathom. It's more pervasive than we can imagine. This power, it means to be able or capable. Now notice where the power resides. It's not in you and me. We can't save anyone or change anyone. We can't do that. We don't have the power to do that. But the gospel does. And here's the really cool thing. We get to participate in sharing it, spreading it, speaking it, and demonstrating it. We can unpack it and we can explain it. And the best way for us to do that is in the context of our story. Of your story, of my story, of our story. I'll be really honest with you. I've never seen the power of the gospel demonstrated when somebody yells at people on a street corner. I've never seen it. I've never seen it when people knock on other people's doors uninvited. I've never seen it when people hold up signs and try to interrupt people on the 16th Street Mall. Listen, I'm sure it's happened. Please hear me when I say that. I'm sure it's happened. I'm just telling you, my personal experience, never seen it. What I have seen, more times than I can count, over many, many years... As I've seen the power of the gospel to save people when one person shares their story with another one. When someone simply says, listen, this is what Jesus has done for me. He's changed my life. Maybe he can do the same for you. Just come and see. The very first followers of Jesus did exactly that. This guy, Philip, went to his friend Nathaniel and told him about Jesus. And Nathaniel's like, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And Philip's like, hey, just come and see. He didn't have to have all the answers. In other words, Philip recognized he didn't have the power to change his friend, but he knew who did. So he invited him to come and see. I came to Flatirons the first time because I was invited by a, a great friend that I, I really love and respect to come and see. I first came because my neighbors kept inviting me and I honestly had nothing better to do. I started coming to Flatirons because uh, my wife made me. We called up a friend and asked her if we could go to her church that she worked at and she told us no, that's not where we wanted to go, so she brought us to Flatirons. Um, I was brought to this church by my son-in-law about 10 years ago. He brought the whole family. My husband introduced me to this church. The foster kid asked me to come. My brother-in-law. My girlfriend. My doctor. My parents. The co-worker of mine. My daughter. My sister-in-law. Our realtor. A college roommate invited me. Our youth leader brought us. My sister's boyfriend's friend invited us. Two different sets of friends said, come here, you're going to love it. The checkout clerk said, you should try flat irons out. We came as a result of our children saying, come and see. Well, my brother standing here called me up one night and he said, uh, I just left church. You got to show up tomorrow. So my brother, I listened to him. I showed up. 
I first came to Flatirons because my husband invited me to come on our second date. <laughs> and then I am what Jim always talks about. I came because she wouldn't date me until I found a church. And I started asking around what's a good church to go to, and the one I kept hearing over and over was Flatirons, Flatirons. But one of my friends really thought that Flatirons would be great for me, and he said, just come and see. Someone said, come and see, and so I came and saw. Yeah. This is not about Flatirons, because Flatirons is all about Jesus. So this is about come and see Jesus. You see, we have this tendency to mistake where the power is. Power resides with Jesus. Paul wanted to caution people away from trying to rely on their talents or their gifts or the unique evangelistic strategies, which is why he said it this way. You might have heard this at a wedding at some point in your life. He said, and I will show you a a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Paul's going, look, you, you can be the most gifted, talented person in the world, but if you don't have love, and the word for love there in the Greek is the word agape, there's four different words for love in Greek to define different kinds of love. We're limited to one in the English language, so we love our wife, we love our friend, and we love pizza. It all, it's all the same word. But in, in Greek, there's four different words for different kinds of love and affection. And this word agape is the one that's most often used to describe God's love for us. And Paul is here telling us that we can give that kind of love to other people. In English, the best way to actually translate the word agape would be charity, which is very closely related to the word for grace in the Greek, which is charis, which means this, a gift that brings inexpressible joy, unmerited, unearned favor. So God's love for us is this charity, this grace, or as C.S. Lewis called it, gift love. And Paul's telling us, listen, you can offer this to others. It means to give to others not what is deserved, but what is needed. And what do people need? Jesus. Is he deserved? Absolutely not. So if you're looking around for people who deserve to hear about Jesus, know Jesus, and come to faith in Jesus, that understand his grace, his mercy, his love, and his sacrifice, if you're looking for people who deserve that, you're going to be looking a long time because none of us deserve that. That's the whole point. That's the point of grace as a gift. But if you're looking for someone that you love who needs to know about Jesus in the context of your story, bet you don't have to look far. That's why Paul says the greatest gift you can offer people is not your ability to teach It's not your ability to prophesy or speak in tongues or any of that stuff. It's actual love, gift love, which is why I think Paul is making this really, really clear because he understands that people have have really good BS meters. You do. All of us do. Like you can tell when someone is not smoking what they're selling, right? You can tell when someone does not buy into the thing that they're trying to present to you, which is why Paul is saying, man, you can have all the strategy, you can have all the presentation in the world, but if you don't actually love people, There's a problem. That's why this whole value series boils down here. We can have biblical authority, but if we don't have love, we're just hitting people upside the head with the Bible. You can point to relational intimacy, but without love, it will come across as inauthentic. Intentional apprenticeship without love is just a heavy burden on people's shoulders. Authentic community without love is not even possible. We'll just all keep our masks on and keep on pretending. Gifted service without love, we'll just find ourselves in a church talent show, all showing off our gifts at the expense of everybody else. Excellent environments without love, just a well-run, unloving organization that will make no difference in the world. Relational evangelism without love is just fake. Folks, we can go around the world. We can build clinics. We can build houses. 
We can build schools. We can start orphanages like we do. We do that without love. We're not going to make a bit of difference. That's true for us as a church. That's true for us as individuals. So let me, let me throw out kind of a diagnostic tool here. And this has been heavy all weekend. It's landed really hard on a lot of us. And it goes like this. You and I love people to the same degree that we love God. Again, C.S. Lewis said it this way, the smallness of our love for God is evidenced by the smallness of our love for people. So little love for people means we have little love for God. Big love for God always turns into big love for people. That's why Jesus said the greatest commandment is really two commandments all folded into one, which is love God and love people. You can't separate those. One of Jesus' followers got it very well. That's why he wrote it down like this. He said, beloved, that's us, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Notice it doesn't say love is God. God defines love, not the other way around. So how do we know what kind of love God has for us? How's that demonstrated? Look at this. In this, the love of God was made manifest, in other words, made known or made clear among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's a fancy word, but I love it. Propitiation means this. To make the payment necessary and to take the punishment we deserved in order to forgive us for our sins, both past, present, and future sins. We didn't deserve it, yet God did it for us anyway. That's called grace. That's called love. And it's a gift. And the natural overflow of that is this. Beloved... If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Very simple. That's not rocket science, right? I mean, he goes on and says it even more plainly. He says, we love because he first loved us. And then there's a painful example. If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So that lands heavy, doesn't it? There's a lot of us looking around going, there's, somebody I, there's people I don't love. There's, in fact, there's some of us going, I don't love most people. There's some of us going, I don't even like people, much less love people. So what is it? you're telling me I don't love God? That's what John just said. Well, there could be a few things going on here. Let me, let me give you a few options of what might be going on in your life if you're going, I don't think I'm a loving person. The first thing that might be going on is this. You don't really understand how loved by God you are. You don't understand how loved you are. So like when John writes, beloved, let us love one another, you're looking around going, who's he talking to? Who's the beloved? Because you don't identify with that. And I'm not loved by God. I don't feel loved by God. I don't think God loves me. That may be what you're really wrestling with. Or this is one of the things that we've been walking through as a staff because we're walking through some of the stuff that we're going to release this spring to everybody. Our staff's going through it first and in regards to our intentional apprenticeship strategy. And one of the things we're looking at is that a bunch of us, we have stated beliefs that don't line up with our actual beliefs. So a lot of us might walk around and go, yeah, I believe God loves me, but we don't really. That truth has not really captivated and affected our heart. So our lives don't line up with what we say we believe. And so that's the first thing we're going to look at this spring is this foundational, very important belief that has to take root in our hearts to make a real difference. And that's that God loves us. If you don't understand and really know and feel how much God loves you, it's going to be very difficult for you to love anybody else. Here's another thing that could be going on, though. If you think you're not a loving person, you might just be mistaking love for a sappy emotional feeling. In every wedding that I've ever done, 
I always say something, something similar to this. I say most days love is a decision of the will. To seek someone else's benefit ahead of your own. To sacrificially give of yourself for others. To provide for them and protect them. That's what the Bible teaches love is. That's how love is demonstrated. And feelings come and go. But most days love is a decision of the will. So it's been hard for me over the course of my life to identify myself as a loving person. Because I've always kind of assumed that means that you're kind of a sappy person. Who gets overcome with emotion all the time. And you like group hugs and things like that. But that's not what the Bible teaches so I based on what the Bible teaches about provide and protect I can stand before you and go I'm a loving man I'm a loving man a lot of you are too and I promise you this if I didn't love people I would not be a pastor there are there are better more effective ways to go out and make a living that's that's not what I would be doing with my life if I didn't love people and a lot of you in here you're very loving look at your life look at who you provide and protect for or here's another option you love people but you're hiding In other words, maybe you're buying into that lie that the most loving thing you could do would be to keep your personal faith in Jesus private. Your faith, your relationship with Jesus is definitely personal, but it is meant to be public. It was never meant to be private. In other words, it's not loving to be quiet about Jesus. See, I think some things kind of seep into our consciousness sometimes. Sometimes it's really explicit and sometimes it's implicit. but, But one of those statements that I've heard over and over again growing up in the church and things like that is this one. Preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. Maybe you've heard that before. And honestly, that's a cop out. Because that statement doesn't even make sense because Jesus announced his kingdom and preached his gospel by using words. The statement itself is, is, is using words, and so did Paul. So should our actions demonstrate the good news? Of course, influence is earned through your honesty and your integrity and love and willing sacrifice to other people. All of our actions should line up with what we say we believe, but we still have to say it. Our words are actual actions as well. That's why Paul spent so much time using words. That's why Jesus spent so much time teaching and preaching, because precisely words are necessary. So the people that you love, that you care about so much, they need to hear your story. They need to hear your words. And it doesn't have to be some theologically extravagant presentation. It just needs to be your story in the context of what Jesus has done for you and how he's changed your life. And that's going to require words. Not just to people that you know, by the way. It also can be with people you don't really know. That's our whole mission strategy around here. Our entire outreach program around the world and locally is designed around this idea that we go places in order to build relationships with people so that we can point them to Jesus all over the place. That's what we do. Take out your program if you got one when you came in here. Flip it over to that colorful side where you will see our local and our global mission things that we've got going on that we've been we've been building for the past 10 years around here and a lot of us in this church have gotten to participate in some of these things you might want to you might want to get involved in some of these things because what we do is we just go around the world or locally and we just build relationships with people out of the opportunity that that presents to be able to share our story what Jesus has done for us and I got to be really really honest with you if I didn't really believe all this Jesus stuff if I didn't really believe that his sacrificial death and resurrection not only saved me from hell but brought me into an interactive relationship with God and his kingdom both now and forever let me tell you what I would not be doing with my life getting on planes and flying around the world trying to help other people I really wouldn't. Some of you might be way better people than me. I just wouldn't do that. I'm not that good of a person on my own. If I didn't believe all this stuff about Jesus, there is no doubt that my conclusion would be, well, then I need to circle my wagons and protect myself and my own. No point in going around the world, much less around the block, to help other people. 
See, make no mistake, whether it's around the world or whether it's people that we know at the office or at school, whatever it is, it's always got to be in a relational way. I was thinking about this concept of relational evangelism a lot in the past couple weeks and I was thinking, man, if I were going to sit down with a friend of mine and tell him about Jesus, I would never do that with a flow chart. I would never do that with some elaborate presentation. I would just talk to them. I'd just talk to them over coffee, over a meal, in the course of our everyday life. And I started thinking, if I was going to do that with a stranger, I also wouldn't use a flow chart. I would just talk to them. So what I'm saying is this. Here's how I think it works best. Just talk to real people in real ways about how Jesus has really changed your life. That's what happens around here all the time. Just talking to real people in real ways about how Jesus has really changed your life. Because the power is in the gospel. That's the good story. That's the dynamite. The responsibility to change anybody, that's not mine. That's not yours. That's on God. Think about this. You may be the first person to ever plant a seed in someone's heart and mind about who Jesus is. And you may never see that thing grow, but you don't have to. Because God is able to do way more than we could ever ask or way more than we could ever imagine. He's capable. He has the power to change the people in our lives that we have a tendency to just write, up, write off and go, it's hopeless. They'll, they're a lost cause. They'll never follow Jesus. I've seen him do it. See, I think that's why Paul was so unashamed. He knew that if Jesus could change him, who he identified himself as one of the worst of sinners, and that's a lot of our stories in here, right? We go, man, if Jesus could change me, he can change anyone, anytime, any way. So here's the takeaway, bottom line of this whole series. Let me ask you a question. Who do you love? Who do you love? In my office, I've got this this table where I study, keep my Bible on there, and I have two sticky notes right next to my Bible with two names, two people that I love that don't know Jesus, and I pray for them as often as I see those two names. I'm just reminded to pray for them. My, My faith and my hope is not in my ability to transform them or change them. It's in the power of the gospel. That's the dynamite. That's the thing that makes these things possible. So I want you to think of two names. Maybe write them down right now. Some of you are like, I I got 20, you know. Write them down right now. People you love, people you care about, that you know need to know about Jesus. People that you can, you know them better than I do. You know a better strategy than I do. So for some people, you're going, all I got to do is say, come and see, and they'll come to church with me next week. Some some of you are going, no, I'm going to have to bribe them. Some of you are going, I might have to kidnap them. Whatever that is, you know them better than, than we do. So so invite them to come and see next week. Now, if I were you, I would go, well, what are you going to be talking about? So here's, here's a preview, all right? Here's what we're going to be talking about between now and Christmas. Next week and Christmas, the rest of this year, we're going to be in a series called Home. Home. We're going to be looking at what does God have in mind for us with this thing called home? What's that look like in God's kingdom? Whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're divorced, whether you have kids or no kids, whatever that looks like, what does God have in mind for us? When it comes to living with one another, living amongst one another, what does God really have in mind for us with this thing called home? Because it's an amazing gift that God has for us. Now let me ask you this. Do you know anyone who has a home that's a disaster right now? Anyone who has a home that's falling apart, barely making it, or has come crashing down on them? Do you know anyone who might need to hear the hope of what home can actually be in God's kingdom? Maybe you should invite them for next week. Here's a crazy thing I've learned being at Flatirons for almost 10 years now. When I invite people to come here, you know what they do? They actually show up. It's weird. It's almost like they were waiting for an invitation. I think they were. So I want you to imagine a few things with me real quick before we're done. I want you to think about the person you were when you met Jesus. You got the picture? Now think about the person you are now. You know what all that in-between stuff is called? A really great story. 
The thing about great stories is they need to be told. So is there someone out there, and I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine years from now, children and grandchildren that worship and follow Jesus. I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine marriages that never get broken. I want you to imagine fathers and mothers and husbands and wives. I want you to imagine entire family trees. I want you to imagine generations. I want you to imagine hundreds, if not thousands of people who follow and worship the one king of the universe because you decided to share your story with one person and that one person changed the trajectory of an entire family tree because you shared your story. See, some of you know that's possible because you are the person who was told by somebody else and your entire family tree is going to be altered because of your influence, all because one person decided to share Jesus in the context of their story with you. Now, who can you do that for? Because here's the deal. Our job is really simple. Obey God, leave the consequences to him. Leave the outcomes to him because he is capable. He is able. He really, really is. Here's what I want us to do. Let's all stand together. There's a prayer uh, that Paul writes in this letter to his church in a place called Ephesus that I want to pray over us today. But as, as I pray that and then as we sing this last song, maybe the prayer for you is just, God, give me the courage, give me the confidence, give me the words to speak to someone this week to invite them to come and see your son Jesus. Let's pray. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.